has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Cutting the Curd. I'm Diane Stemple. I'm subbing for Ann Saxelby, who's off on maternity leave. And today I have Tyler Hawes with me in the studio. He's the Vice President of Sales and Operations for Chef's Warehouse, also known as Dairy Land. And uh, Tyler, how are you doing? I'm great, Diane. How are you? Good. Can you tell me exactly what uh, you do for Chef's Warehouse? Sure. I um I work for the Chef's Warehouse. We uh, operate eight distribution centers uh, across the East and West Coast, and uh, we're kind of most known in New York as Dairyland. We've been here for uh, 25 years and continue to grow, um, with Brooklyn being our one of the most exciting and uh, new territories. Great. I thought it would be a good idea to have a distributor on for a change of pace since I've had various other cheese professionals. The ex- exciting world of, of distribution. Right, right. Logistics, distribution, all sorts of exciting things. And it's been a big year for distribution, I'd say. It, it has been. We, um, we're seeing a lot of changes in the distribution space. Um, you have a lot of medium and larger companies that are acquiring you know, other small and medium-sized businesses. Um, which has given the opportunity for a lot of great small businesses to come into play that are more specialized, whether that's cheese or other specialty food products. Okay, well, maybe more on that later. First, I have a tough question. I would like you to summarize for our listeners what happened in the Ricotta Salata Listeria episode of 2012. Um, well, the... The stereo episode with the ricotta salata has gotten a tremendous amount of media attention. Um, it escalated very quickly, um, and there were really dozens and dozens of end, end customers that were affected, including, um, I don't know how many distributors, but there were multiple. Mm-hmm. Um, very quickly, with the uh, CDC and FDA giving us the information that um, there was an issue tied back to that particular product, um, you know, we went through all of our processes and procedures to be able to recall uh, that product on our side. Mm-hmm. Um, but it highlighted um, the seriousness, obviously, of the the business that we're in and mm-hmm. that we make a commitment to on the food safety side, uh, not just as businesses, but also as individuals working within that space. Mm-hmm. Is there any way uh, you can imagine it could have been prevented? Um. You know, we, we all make a um, kind of, right now I would say it's an implicit um, c- 
commitment uh, when we work for any food business that we are taking some level of risk. Mm -hmm. um, anything that the FDA does, anything that independent businesses do is all about reducing that risk. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain preventative measures that you can take um, different precautions um, and be extra careful, but it's not something you're ever going to completely eliminate. That's what I thought. Do you feel that the episode was fairly quickly stopped? Do you yeah, I think it, I, I think it was it was handled um, as best as possible. the The amazing thing is the puzzle that gets put together uh, by the uh, Center for Disease Control. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, we have to be a little bit amazed by the behind the scenes work that uh, an organization like that can do to be able to put those things together from various states to actually pinpoint one individual product, especially a product that can be, you know, is not usually eaten on its own. It's something that's either grated, right. uh, could be cooked, it could be used as a finishing product. Um, so, uh, In terms of them organizing what the sick people had eaten absolutely. in common. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. hmm. I never even thought of that part of it. Oh, it's uh, So first it's the remarkable. CDC figures it out and then it goes to the FDA. And then, uh, exactly. Um, and then it starts with voluntary recalls, and then it goes to mandatory recalls. But, you know, it really gives a lot of ownership to the independent businesses of how they handle any of those particular situations. Mm -hmm. Now, what could a cheesemaker do to minimize future events like that? Well, I think a, a cheesemaker and, uh, you know, anybody within the supply chain um, mm -hmm. has to hold themselves and anybody that's behind them in the supply chain and forward to them in the supply chain accountable for, um, you know, every precautionary and preventative maintenance that they can do. Mm -hmm. um, it obviously starts with the cheesemaker, um, but if they're not a farmstead cheesemaker, they're getting milk from a particular source. Right. Um, all of the, the internal testing that they do to ensure that the raw materials they use all the way through the supply chain, um, you know, have to be in check. Mm -hmm. um, us as a distributor, um, it's all about minimal contact. So, uh, the, with the cheese, with the cheese, with any product, we want to turn that product over as quickly as possible. We want to make sure we keep the integrity of any packaging that is in place, and we want to make sure we have all of our hazardous points um, in as much control as we can to prevent any potential issue. What kinds of changes do you think people may put into place because of what happened this this past year? Well, th there is an initiative um, by President Obama with the Food Modernization Act um, mm -hmm. that he signed last January that's had a little bit of a, a challenge getting um, executed. Um, I don't know whether or not that was political in the last six months, but I think his reelection will allow that to um, you know, be a part of his, you know, his next term, hopefully, you know, sooner rather than later. The challenge with that is not only the bureaucracy, but, you know, behind the scenes, there's over a thousand pages of written information that is going to go into the new rules and regulations that really is transforming what the FDA does. And it's the first big revamp in over 70 years. So if you can imagine what's happened in the food business in the last 70 years, there hasn't been a lot of uh, FDA working in lockstep with those changes. Uh, okay. So, I mean, one of the things that I read online and have heard informally from cheesemakers is that um, cross-contamination. You don't want, if you cut cheese, if you cut the suspicious cheese and then you did not wash properly, you, will, you could contaminate a whole other bunch of cheese. And that some stores or places are thinking of 
not doing any cut to order because of this. Yeah, as a distributor, I, I believe that uh, we should leave the cutting to be done right before service. So there's a minimum uh, chance to be any cross-contamination mm-hmm. or be done actually at the source with the cheesemaker. Mm-hmm. So for the cheesemaker to invest in a cutting operation of some sort, whether that's taking you know, 40 or 50 pound wheels of cheddar, quartering them, cutting them in eighths, um, or even just taking a piece and cutting it in half to make mm-hmm. it more uh, friendly to uh, restaurants and maybe even some retailers. It's better to be done where the cheese is made um, or at the end customer where it's going to be mm-hmm. served. But where the cheese is made, that goes against wanting full wheels, you know, the, the philosophy of wanting the full wheel to travel so that it doesn't die before it gets to where it's going. You know, that it's, it's such a good point. I think that um, in theory, I think that's great, is you want to maintain that integrity of the product mm-hmm. until the very end. Um, but I would rather see a bit more portioning happening in the supply chain to allow for higher turnover, mm-hmm. to allow for, uh, especially on the food service side, for restaurants to be able to purchase and hold a smaller quantity. So, a smaller safe quantity. Yeah, smaller safe quantity. Mm-hmm. We forget that um, uh, you know, a restaurant may take them, you know, two, three, four weeks to go through a 20 pound wheel of cheese. Mm-hmm. Um, I would much prefer that to be a slightly, even if we sacrifice quality a little bit, I think we'll increase safety and probably the end customer experience. If we, um, if we do that a little bit before, even if there is a period of time where that product is obviously not in its optimal state. Though mm-hmm. so the cheese customer has been taught to prefer the stores that are cut to order. Not pre-cut. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. I think that that's the ideal space for whole wheels and cheese. But the to have a distributor or a restaurant take on more product than they can use within a short period of time, I think increases the exposure and actually decreases the quality as well. Okay. And I read online, I didn't even realize this, that listeria grows in refrigeration. I mean, there's no... How do you kill listeria? You don't? Um, well, there, there's always a little bit of... Um, I think listeria that exists um, in very kind of minute quantities. Um, you'll have to fact check me on that. But, um, you know, it, it's all about reducing risk. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's always something that is a part of this industry that we cope with. And I think we should make a more unified effort to make that more acknowledged and a part of the business rather than this exceptional part that we look to some regulatory agency to tell us what to do. I think we have to all take ownership of our own practices our own policies to ensure that, you know, us as any owner, op- any, any operator, whether that's a large company, uh, small retail store is doing everything that they can and not waiting for, you know, the federal government to tell us what's best. Mm-hmm. Uh, the FDA new rules are aimed more at prevention. Is that is that a change? Can you speak a little bit about that? It is. So right now, at the, the root of it, the FDA actually just um, is more of a regulatory and issues punishment for noncompliance. Mm-hmm. So it is not in the business of preventative maintenance, and, or not preventative maintenance, but preventative um, you know, methodologies or situations. So Mm -hmm. they're looking to make sure that we have in place um, all the way down and through the supply chain, um, the practices and procedures that limit risk uh, 
And are those primarily recall practices or also health practices? So it, it starts all the way, and a lot of this is, is focused around imports, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all about uh, prior notice of imports, registering. So the Bioterrorism Act of 2002 required that every food manufacturer and distributor register with the FDA, which was not in play prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so now it will increase the amount of inspections. Um, it will require... Uh, HACCP and control policies outside of right now where it's only required is when you actually are a manufacturer or you portion something like meat. Mm -hmm. Um, The Modernization Act actually does not include meat and poultry. Mm. So it is something that's very, very... It does not include meat and poultry. No. Should it? Should it include meat and poultry? You know, it's not my expertise. I think that there are more regulations on the meat and poultry side, um, but that's something separate that, that we that that's separate. Okay. You know, I don't know exactly, um, but I do think that this will be more focused on you know the higher higher perishables like mm-hmm. cheese. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think being in the cheese business, uh, we've often felt like cheese is not the culprit. And why are they, you know, focusing on cheese? And also ricotta salata is pasteurized, correct? And it's not soft. It is. So it's, it's not in the high-risk groups. Well, you know, I think we, we make those assumptions in terms of, you know, higher moisture content obviously can, can have higher risk. Um, you know, obviously there are many that will argue that um, a, you know, fresh mozzarella that's pasteurized or, you know, a, a younger cheese that's pasteurized is more dangerous than a raw milk cheese. I mean, I think that's probably a totally, you know, separate That's separate a different show. debate. <laughs> um, the raw milk fight. That's right. But, you know, the reality of it is, is that um, you know, this happens to a lot of different food types. We hear a lot about, um, there, as part of the Food Modernization Act, is uh, there's a lot of very specific things related to produce. So mm-hmm. we read about, you know, spinach. We read about, um, you know, seafood in certain cases. We read about um, peanut butter. So it is something that, you know, cheese seems to be a low-hanging fruit because I think it's a little bit unknown. Mm-hmm. And because you have a lack of education, um, I think it tends to get it targeted a little bit more than necessarily it should. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think doctors tell pregnant women not to eat mm-hmm. soft cheese, not to eat raw milk cheese. Well, they have to tell them something, right? So <laughs> Not to drink coffee. Right. Don't, don't drink coffee, don't you know, drink wine, or maybe you can have one glass, don't have unpasteurized cheeses. I mean, I think that's part of this 70-year-old mentality that, you know, is, is a precautionary measure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that wrong to say that? Um, not really. You know, it, it's really a comfort level than anything else. Mm-hmm. Do you see, uh, have people on your job and people in the cheese industry uh, changed the way they're doing business because of this? Um, you, you see a lot of, uh, of, of distributors, you see a lot of people within the space, retailers starting to require a tremendous amount of information mm-hmm. from their suppliers. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that can seem a little bit draconian at times, mm-hmm. but, uh, I think the more we can hold each other accountable, the better, mm-hmm. but not for the sake of having a piece of paper in a file cabinet. Right. You know, I think it has to have a greater purpose. And I think, um, you know, food distributors, cheese distributors, retailers need to have a mission statement really surrounding how they're promoting a very food safe environment. Mm-hmm. So everyone imagining a possible recall wants to get their ducks in order. Absolutely. You know, the the possibility of a recall is inevitable. Mm-hmm. You know, we shouldn't 
think about this as an exceptional situation. We should think about this as how we operate and run our business most effectively. So mm-hmm. um, I would encourage everybody within the distribution space to do mock recalls, make sure that you have um, everything in place to be able to execute a recall. You've tested that. You're comfortable with that. It's no different than having so a So if it has grill. to come to pass, you're ready. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. It's time for us to take a break on Cutting the Curd. This is Diane Stemple. My guest is Tyler Hawes, and we'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Forever by Jerome LOL on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef. Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Hi, this is Diane Stemple at Cutting the Curd. I'm with Tyler Hawes from Chef's Warehouse in the studio. And we were just talking about uh, FDA and listeria panic and things like that. And now we're going to segue to a completely different topic, talking about cheese and food jobs. Uh, In preparation for having Tyler on the show, I was Googling around the Internet, and I realized that I found... A dairy farmer is one of the 10 worst jobs in America, and it pays $33,000. And then there was a lot of conversation, I guess, amongst dairy farmers saying, no, it's great, money doesn't matter, if it's your own family and your own cows, it's cool. But anyway, we uh, Tyler and I had talked about that many young people are attracted to food jobs, cheese and otherwise, and... Um, the people that I've worked with are doing entry-level jobs, fairly low-paying, and where can they aspire to land in their careers? I'm just wondering, Tyler, if you have some ideas about that. Well, I think we're a little bit in the same boat as the entertainment business. You know, there's a level of vanity that people uh, associate with being in the food business, and same with you know being uh, as part of a film crew. But at the end of the day, we we work uh, just as hard, if not harder, than uh, other industries. And sometimes uh, it can be just as thankless at times. Right, it doesn't seem quite as glamorous as the film industry. Well, okay, maybe. <laughs> um, well, it can at holiday parties um, when you have relatives asking you about. Oh, what then you you're do, the star. Then you're totally the star. <laughs> um, you know, I think it, 
the there are a lot of great opportunities in the food business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the entry level space is challenging because the the industry has attracted a tremendous amount of career changers. Right. Um, so you have people that are working um, behind the line as a line cook. You have people working at the counter of a cheese shop. You have people, um, you know, looking to get into food sales for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is pressing a reset button, and it is challenging because uh, I think the food industry tends to be a little elitist in the sense that um, it kind of assumes that you know nothing. And any skill set that you learned in college or that you had in a different profession, uh, profession does not necessarily apply in the food business. But I would disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Now, can you tell us a little bit about yourself personally? What did you study in college and how quickly did you go to food after college? Um, I, I studied mostly finance. Um, I have a finance degree. And well, that applies at least to what you're doing. A little bit, a little bit, but it took me a while to get there. So um, what did you do first? Well, after I left um, being working for an investment bank for a very short period of time and telling myself that I wanted to do something that I felt more passionate about, I went to culinary school, like a lot of people do, Mm -hmm. um, took on some debt, and then I landed a a job paying um, me nothing. (laughs) And And, and where was that job? Was it in cheese? That was at cheese. That was at Artisanal, (laughs) um, at at the Artisanal Cheese Center. And uh, I know, Diane, we talked a little bit about the uh, how many unpaid jobs you found on some of the websites that are, are looking for, you know, highly talented people. Uh-huh. And, you know, I'm, I'm challenged by it. I, I think that if you are going to um, work somewhere uh, for the pure purpose of just getting some exposure and being educated for, of a particular profession for a week, two weeks, maybe even a month, um, working for free, but really losing money in the process, you know, might be worth, worth that investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, I truly believe that any time that you have, um, you're getting actual utility and productivity out of an employee, you should pay them. Hmm. You know, and that's something that does not happen um, as much as it should on the entry level. Now, why do you think that is, is it a tradition in the food business to not pay people? Well, I think it's become a, a, a traditional kind of exploit um, mm-hmm. of the food business, um, as if there's this secret sauce behind the curtain that, you know, uh, you have to put in this time, and uh, then maybe we'll think about giving you an entry-level job, I think it is is not appropriate. Right. Now, I remember when I was first working for also Artisanal at the restaurant, they threw a French word at me, stage. Mm-hmm. And I was very excited to work for free. Sure. When I thought a French word could be applied to it. Uh, you know, there is a traditional track, especially within the restaurant business. You can have it in kitchens. You have people that hop from restaurant to restaurant. Um, people who want to get into cheese work at uh, Murray's or uh, another great retail shop. And then they go up and, and they work with a the cheesemaker. They go to Europe. They get all this exposure, um, which is great. But you have to be able to afford to do that. And right. and I think it's become a little bit elitist in terms of really only attracting people that can afford to take that amount of time to lend to their education. That's true. So who makes money in cheese? Where is the money? There's um, 
Well, the, the short answer is there's no money really in cheese. <laughs> um, no, the the challenge is 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 at some point you'll have to make a decision that mm-hmm. um, you know working in retail, whether that's at a clothing store or in cheese, you know, has its limitations in terms of you know the runway of a career from right. a financial standpoint. Um, but if you're willing to take some risk, you can always obviously go out and do something on your own. I think that's obviously a, a, um, a could have a lot of upside, but obviously has a lot of risk. Right. Because um, as the owner, you make money. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I think that people have to look beyond the scope of maybe just the smaller, more specialized businesses and say, you know what? It's okay. I can make an impact at a large business like Whole Foods, or I right. can make a large impact at the chef's warehouse mm-hmm. um, that are more entrepreneurial that, you know, foster or a culture that uh, has the ability to make that impact. And it mm-hmm. just depends on your priorities. Uh, I think in the food world, though, we tend to shy away from the word corporate. We're nervous. Sure, We're nervous sure. about that word. It, it, it is. It's a, it's a four-letter word. Um, you know, to each their own. I think that, um, you know, perception is reality when it comes to that. I think that um, I've heard experiences from people, you know, Look, you don't work for um, a company all the time. You work for other people. You don't, you know, I, one of my mentors always told me that, you know, you don't quit a company, you quit a boss. Mm-hmm. So I think there are great people that uh, can mentor within. You can find them everywhere. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and you may have the opportunity to, to uh, get better benefits and, and obviously have a, a, a longer career path. Uh, but it is challenging. And mm-hmm. I don't think that education, uh, especially when it's unrelated to uh, putting in the time behind a counter, uh, is is rewarded in the way that it should be. Right. I was going to ask, there's a lot more degrees to get now that relate to food. You can do food studies, you can do logistics, you can do culinary school, as you mentioned. Do those degrees make sense? Which degrees make the most sense? You know, I think in terms of, of personal development, any education makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of applying a... Uh, a food studies degree at NYU, um, you know, doing the master's program at Slow Food, all of these things are going to make you a more well-rounded person. But I would associate them a little bit with a, a liberal arts education. Uh, so not necessarily a job tract. No, I, I don't think that these are, um, you know, vocational type of, of mm-hmm. programs, uh-huh. right? So they're not necessarily giving you, even culinary school. I went to culinary school um, at the French Culinary Institute and, and uh, I I don't call myself a chef. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I gained some great exposure. I made some great contacts. But I think you you get out what you put in. Mm-hmm. When um, you were there, were you expecting to become a chef? No, I went in with, with really little expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're really looking to be a chef, I think you should have some exposure in restaurants before you go to culinary school. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember how long ago. It might have been you know 2008. Uh, about the article about you know talking about culinary schools and the debt burden and right. um, you know these these They're schools quite significant can cost thirty forty fifty sixty thousand dollars a uh, not even a year six months nine mm-hmm. months um, so if you're looking to that for that return on investment um, you know I think you have to make sure that uh, you're you're willing to make some sacrifices also after you graduate. Mm-hmm. How would you advise an interested college student in uh, who thinks they want a career in food, cheese or food, and what would you tell them to do? The, the kind of discovery 
um, route and the exposure of working at, um, you know, a Murray's or, um, you know, working with Anne at, at Saxelby Cheesemongers or working up at a farm, I think, can be a great entree in terms of, um, you know, just going through that development process. Mm-hmm. But uh, Cheesemakers... But w- not for free. Right, exactly. <laughs> but not for free. Um, you know, just to make sure that this is the industry that you feel most passionate about. And then I wouldn't be afraid to, to try different things within that business. Um, you know, I work for a medium-sized company, and I get to work with all of the most exciting, you know, um, restaurants on the East and West Coast. Mm-hmm. So I think it's also about the avenue of who you get to interact with, um, what you get to be a part of, who you get to benefit. And for me, um, in addition to being passionate about the products that, that we sell, I get to impact a tremendous amount of people. And I think you have to, to look of what that balance is. Um, and for me, sales was part of that. You know, I really enjoy the interaction with people. I mm-hmm. enjoy, you know, that kind of dogfight a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, would I have said, oh, I'm going to go into sales, you know, outside of the food business? Probably not. Uh-huh. Like, so at least you're talking about what you're interested in. You're Absolutely. in places that you want to be in, even though you're doing sales for, a, you know, somewhat of a corporate environment. Sure. And, you know, when it comes to cheese, I know that if I sell, you know, more um, king cut Swiss cheese, you know, that really nobody would be super excited about um, on a cheese plate. Mm -hmm. I know that if I can sell more of that, that I can create a platform to sell more artisan American cheese. Mm -hmm. So that's what I can get passionate about is I create a platform to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not exclusive on one or the other. Mm -hmm. So you you have a a lot of different products, so you can sort of measure them, balance them. Yeah, it becomes a balance. And, you know, it it also has to, the economics have to work. Mm -hmm. Um, They have to work for the restaurant. They have to work for the distributor. They have to work for the cheesemaker and I think the more that you can balance that um, the more longevity you're going to have especially having you know a cheese program as a restaurant mm-hmm. now a lot of people complain about the prices of American cheese and think that American cheesemakers are raking in the dough can you talk about that briefly uh, are they raking in the dough? I, I believe I, they're not. I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I believe they're not. But um, I, I think when you're behind the counter and you're trying to sell American cheese, there have absolutely. been a lot of complaints. So, uh, when you compare uh, American cheese and and the cheese uh, out of out of Europe, especially, um, you have to recognize that the scale of production in Europe is much greater. Mm-hmm. So, even though you believe you're having you know the best pavé doge on the planet, mm-hmm. um, the scale of that production is actually much more significant than a lot of the artisan cheesemakers. So, so one, to us, it would look corporate. Uh, it would. Even though a little bit more. once it comes here, it looks like a small cheese. Yeah, so mm-hmm. they have a bit more scale on the production side. They're dealing with a land mass that has sophisticated logistics to be able to move perishable food products around, uh, whether that's in France, that's in Spain, that's mm-hmm. in the entire EU. Okay. Um, so... They're more advanced on logistics. They have less distance to travel. And what about the subsidies? And, subsidies people complain and about. Then they have incentives and subsidies. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. from the government. That's right. So you know, from New York City up to Vermont um, is really farther than most of the cheese has to travel in, in France. In France, right. so uh, there aren't the subsidies. Um, the cost of uh, raw materials is in most cases higher because there's no subsidies there either. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mean the milk? Right. Mm-hmm. And, on, and there isn't the scale, going back to that. So, you know, we're supporting an ecosystem that's growing, that will have scale, that needs to have scale to be able to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're willing to put down a little bit more of a premium now, um, we'll see savings in the future and we're, we're cr- 
we're supporting a you know group of people um, and animals and that whole um, supply chain that I think is going to um, you know surpass. Uh, what we've seen in Europe from a specialty and imported food side, mm-hmm. we just so have to eventually it. blossom. Absolutely, what we're doing now will will help us later. It will. It's an investment. Okay, great. Okay, our time is up on cutting the curd. I'm Diane Stemple, subbing for Ann Saxelby. I've had Tyler Hawes in the studio from Chef's Warehouse, and you can get a um, a version of this from iTunes or Stitcher, and we're at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thank you. Today's outro song is Onions Milk by Iggy Dean. You've been listening to Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.